Grab your trowel and a cup of coffee. You're listening to Archeo Cafe. I'm your host, Otis Crandell. Welcome to another episode of Archeo Cafe. I'm Otis, and today I'm talking with Adriana Wiley of the University of Guelph in Guelph, Canada. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. It's great to have you here today. One thing that I'm always interested in hearing about when I meet other archaeologists is how it all got started. What initially got you interested in archaeology? Um, so back when I was trying to decide what to do for my undergrad, I was kind of looking around, you know, um, I have very eclectic interests. So I was like, do I want to do science? Do I want to do humanities? I'm not really sure. Um, and that's when I discovered anthropology. Um, and at the University of Western Ontario, where I did my undergrad, it is a four subfield anthropology department. So we have sociocultural anthropology, biological anthropology, archaeology, as well as linguistic anthropology. Um, and so I thought that would be the perfect degree for me to be able to sort of uh, go into all of uh, my different interests and explore those. Yeah. Um, and, and over the course of that, you know, I took uh, courses in, in all those different areas. Um, biological anthropology is, is sort of my uh, strong suit, but I also, um, you know, my master's is actually yeah. in sociocultural anthropology. Um, and of course, we're talking about my honors thesis uh, a bit today, which was in uh, archaeology. So really, what got me into archaeology specifically was uh, I, I took a course uh, called Arctic Archaeology. Um, to, to cover one of my breadth requirements, uh, where I met Dr. Lisa Hodgetts, uh, who was the professor for that mm-hmm. course, and, and she just really inspired me. Um, you know, I really loved her course and, and what she was doing with sort of more community-engaged scholarship mm-hmm. in archaeology. So I think in terms of getting into archaeology in particular, um, it was definitely her, her mentorship um, and, and that course that, that got me started in this direction in terms of research. Oh, what is the most interesting but unexpected thing that you've learned as an archaeologist? Hmm. Interesting but unexpected. Um, I think in terms of archaeology, I mean, I think people, you know, outside the field tend to think, um, you know, that it's very sort of we're looking back in time and, and maybe, you know, it's interesting, but not as relevant to sort of the present and what's going on today. So I think sort of interesting, but surprising, you know, if you're not super familiar with archaeology is, you know, the ways that archaeology actually interacts with things going on in the present, the way that, for for instance, it can be used mm. um, to help support Indigenous land claims. Um, you know, it, it can be very useful in lots of different political discussions that are happening in the present. And, you know, we also use information from the present, from from people, you know, from the area, from descendant communities to actually interpret what's going on archaeology. So uh, it kind of works um, both directions, you know. What's the most interesting thing that you've ever worked on in archaeology? <laughs> Um, so I am a lab rat. Um, I have never actually done, um, field work, uh, in archeology. span So all of my archeological work has been, uh, done from a collection from Banks Mm -hmm. Island, uh, from the, the site of Arctic, 
um, uh, and that, that was something that Lisa uh, had excavated and, and brought all the bones back. And then I looked at those in the lab. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a lab person. I don't, I don't dig myself. <laughs> What's your main area of interest in archeology? span um, So my main area of interest in archeology span would be um, in terms of bioarcheology. span So uh, I think in terms of bioarcheology, span uh, senso latu, so in the broad sense, um, not in the strict sense. Um, so, super interested in osteology, of course, so that would be uh, bioarchaeology, sensu stricto, but um, also in zooarchaeology and looking at the animal bones that we find at sites um, and then seeing, you know, what can those those bones tell us about the people at the site, about how they lived, um, about their subsistence strategies, mm -hmm. about what they wore um, and, and any other way that they might have used those bones or the animals that, that those bones come from. Right. One of the things I know that you've been working on is Arctic foxes. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us first a bit about the people and the place that your research focuses on? Yeah, for sure. So uh, my research, um, and this is research I did for an honors thesis uh, when I was at Western, an undergraduate honors thesis. Um, and so that um, that research was looking at Arctic fox bones that came from uh, a site on Banks Island in the Northwest Territories in Canada, and that's located in the Inuvialuit settlement region. Um, so the people who live there now are are the Inuvialuit, um, and and their ancestors are um, a group called the Tule Inuit. Um, so the Tule uh, were were the the first group of, of Inuit people to sort of move from Alaska into the Canadian Arctic. Mm. Um, and so the site that I looked at uh, was on Banks Island um, and uh, as I said, Arctic site. Um, and I looked specifically um, at one dwelling that was excavated um, during the 2014 field season. Um, so it was at this site and there was a group of dwellings that were sort of near a, a gully that leads into the Beaufort Sea. Um, and this dwelling, um, we refer to it as dwelling two, was at risk of sort of falling into that gully. So it was mm. excavated. Um, and that, that was a, a cormat, so a transitional season dwelling. Um, it was part of, so at the site, there were uh, two phases of occupation. So people first lived there uh, around 1400 AD, and then a second time in 1550 AD. And so dwelling two was part of the, the 1550 AD occupation. Oh, you mentioned that dwelling two was a Carmack. Could you explain to our listeners what a Carmack is? Karmat is a, a traditional, or sorry, a transitional season dwelling that was used throughout the Tule Inuit and historic Inuit uh, periods. Mm -hmm. It's typically made from uh, stone, sod, or snow walls, and then has a skin roof that's constructed over a shallow depression. Um, and people usually live in these kinds of dwellings in the fall and spring, sort of when it's too cool for a skin tent, but it's not yet cold enough for um, like a semi-subterranean sod or snow house. Okay. So what's the environment like there? Um, so it is, it, it is an Arctic tundra uh, biome. There's very little vegetation, um, but there is, you know, a number of different animal species, uh, ringed seal, caribou, 
um, muskox uh, and arctic fox being some that are, are particularly relevant to this site. How do the modern people of the area relate to the Thule people who were present at the archaeological site? Yeah, so the current uh, Inuvialuit occupants of the island are mostly descendants of several families who moved to Banks Island in the 1920s to trap foxes for trade. Um, and the Thule are the direct ancestors of the modern Inuit peoples, um, and, and that includes Inuvialuit. So they are um, direct sort of descendants of, of this group. And how do you incorporate knowledge of the present Inuvialuit when interpreting the finds of past people? Yeah, so the first way would be um, Lisa has a project called the Inuvialuit Living History Project. And so this project um, was created sort of initially um, to bring uh, Inuvialuit people from Banks Island um, to Washington, D.C., to the Smithsonian, to look at this collection of objects that was housed there. It's called the McFarling Collection, after the Hudson's Bay trader who sort of brought those objects there. Um, and, and they were brought there, and they sort of um, then were able to look at these objects and, and help us really understand them, and then also, you know, to connect them to these objects that had, you know, been taken from Banks Island that they hadn't seen um, for a long time. And, and so... Um, through the Inuvialuit Living History Project um, and Lisa's connections with that community, um, you know, she's able to sort of talk to people about, um, you know, the things that we're finding, you know, when I'm looking at the fox bones um, or, or other things she's finding with different researchers sort of from the site and talk to them about, you know, we found this thing. It's kind of weird. We're not sure as archaeologists what it might be. And they go, oh, yeah, you know, my grandmother, grandfather used to do this. And, and that's probably what that thing is. So so that's certainly one way um, through that project and just through Lisa's relationship with that community. Um, the other way is through, um, you know, part of my research was reading um, all the ethnographies I could find, uh, as well as the ethno history. So um, both the works of, of anthropologists who have gone up to the Arctic um, and, and researched different Inuit um, cultures, as well as, you know, um, sort of less professional accounts of uh, like missionaries, explorers going up and writing ethno histories. Um, so, so I also read those and those also do contribute to our knowledge about, about the practices um, that, that could help us interpret things. So the Inuvialuit on Banks Island have a particular relationship with the foxes. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so the Inuvialuit on Banks Island have one of the strongest and most highly developed trapping traditions in the world. Um, and his, so historically, furs are Canada's oldest and most important resource. And in the Canadian Arctic, the fur trade developed rapidly after the collapse of the whaling industry in 1906, which um, then that fur trade centered primarily on Arctic fox pelts. And because Banks Island is just home to so many Arctic fox, they are really, really abundant there. Um, like Lisa says, when she goes up, they'll actually like follow her and other researchers around and like try and steal her lunch. And there's just like so <laughs> many of them up there. Um, and, you know, they're not, they're not like, uh, red foxes that, you know, we picture as kind of sly. They're really quite um, outgoing and, and not, especially up there, like not that afraid of people. Um, but Banks Island um, and, and the people there sort of from the 1930s into the 1970s, Banks Island was actually known as the Arctic fox capital of the world just because of their really um, strong, successful trapping tradition. 
um, yeah. Do you think the foxes are that way because they're more accustomed to humans because they're, they're interacting with the humans? Um, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I believe it's just sort of the, the nature of those foxes. Like they're less mm -hmm. suspicious than red foxes. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, there's also up there, like they'll just come into the villages and, and sort of eat whatever's around, scavenge whatever's around. And, mm -hmm. so, and, and there's so many of them, just so many of them up there. So. And is there any danger to them when they come into the village or do the people treat them friendly? Um, I've never been up there. Uh, like I said, Lisa says they kind of follow her around and, and can be a bit of a nuisance to researchers. Like I've read to different like biological researchers that go up there for different things, kind of same deal. They'll like follow them around. And, um, you know, if they're looking for, um, like if they're researching birds, for example, they can like follow the researchers and find where the nests are and steal their oh, eggs, okay. which isn't good. Um, so they, they can be considered yeah. a bit of a nuisance sometimes. Um, they also, you know, especially when their, their main food source, the lemmings, um, lemmings are on a, a cyclical sort of life cycle. So some years there's like a ton of lemmings and then there'll be a crash. And so, uh, Arctic fox follows also that cycle right. because it's the main food source. Mm -hmm. So some years they're just like out of out of control and in that case you know they're kind of a nuisance so they'll just sort of pick them off but um generally you know they are you know different uh, inuit cultures really respect animals and and there's certain rules for um you know making sure animals are respected so i i imagine same same sort of deal with these communities and um uh, they are really important in the sense that that they um, are important to the lifestyle on on Banks Island because they uh, were important to the fur trade and and allowed people to maintain cash incomes higher than many other parts of Canada through throughout the the 1900s. So they are very important in that way. So a lot of your research is based on the Arvik site. What did you learn about the interaction of foxes and the Thule people at the Arvik site? Yeah, so what we know about the interaction between foxes and the Thule people at Arvik is uh, primarily based on the excavation of uh, one dwelling, which we called that dwelling two. Um, and within this dwelling, it appears that foxes were very important. So mm. there we found like an abundance of fur. There's a lot of ulu, which are used um, for preparing skins. They're, they're knives that are used for preparing skins, um, as well as fragments of ulu. So just a lot of those tools um, that you would need to prepare fox skins, lots of fur, um, an abundance of fox remains um, in itself, like more than, than we would expect. Um, at these kind of sites based on, you know, comparison to other Arctic sites of, of similar age and, and location. Um, and then there also seems to be an element of symbolic importance. So there was one feature um, which contained 13 Arctic fox crania, mm. um, and it was found beneath um, sort of a wall collapse from, from the house, um, but above the preserved vegetation. So what that tells us is that it was buried um, there just before the house was constructed. So what uh, we think happened was um, the, the skulls were, were set there and the house was pretty much immediately built on top of them. 
Um, and then sort of through throughout this um, dwelling, there's also um, cloth, so there's like pairs of fox uh, crania, which are also buried um, just, you know, two together in sort of pit fills. Um, so it seems like there's the structured deposition um, of, of fox, fox crania, which seems to perhaps indicate there was a symbolic importance um, for foxes for the people at these, the site. What were the foxes used for and how does this compare to the present day uses? Yeah, so based on my cut mark analysis of the bones, um, it was likely that the foxes at this site were used for both food as well as for their furs. Um, and so in present day, uh, so in, in the recent past and in the present, there's really a focus on the fur um, and particularly the good quality fur that foxes have in midwinter. Um, Lisa says, you know, the Inuvialik community today on Banks Island is pretty picky about um, sort of what uh, fur they use. They really want that good winter fur, mm -hmm. um, particularly because it's preferred for sort of hood trimmings and that sort of thing. So they really want that good, pristine, um, thick fur. Um, whereas, you know, the, the foxes that we found um, at least some of them based on um, epiphyseal fusion analysis, which sort of tells us the age of the foxes. Um, some of them we can see uh, were pretty young, which means they would have still had sort of their patchy summer pelage, um, which, which suggests to us that they were maybe being used as a, a fallback food. Um, you know, if there was uh, not so many caribou available that summer um, when the people uh, at this site were transitioning um, sort of from their summer foods of caribou or muskox into their winter food of, of ringed seal. Sometimes that can be a season um, where there isn't a lot to go around. So foxes could have sort of supplemented their diet at that time. Um, but generally speaking, uh, in the present and the recent past, foxes are sort of considered unpalatable, especially when they're lean, um, because they are carnivores and carnivores right. don't really taste very good. <laughs> Why were foxes so common at Arvik? Um, so based on my findings, what we think is that, so uh, fox are already really abundant on Banks Island. Like uh, I mentioned earlier, there's just a lot of them around. Um, and we think they probably served as an important fallback food um, because Banks Island is located in the Amudsen Gulf region, which sort of lacks the biodiversity of foodstuffs that we find at other Arctic regions, such as the Canadian Eastern Arctic. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so, as I said, um, these foxes could have been used as, as a fallback food um, to sort of support people who are living um, in this region that just doesn't have as much um, as, as other regions of the Arctic where we see more, um, more ring seal and more caribou. Um, and, and of course, they were also used for furs. So um, Dwelling 2 probably also functioned as an important fur processing uh, place at this site. Your research looks at how the foxes were skinned and butchered. What were some of the main finds? What interpretations were you able to draw from this? Yeah, so historically, there are two techniques for skinning Arctic fox that we see talked about sort of both in the ethnographic and ethnohistoric records, um, and which are used to some extent into the present. So the first involves stripping uh, the 
the fox through its mouth without making any cuts to the skin. So um, using that method to sort of predict where I would find cut marks if this method would, would were used, um, we would see cut marks sort of to the mandible, which is the jawbone, particularly along the horizontal ramus. So that's the upward part that sort of connects the mandible to the rest of the skull, um, where the masseter muscle would have to be removed in order to sort of peel that skin off. Um, and then contemporary uses of that method also involve moving an ulu across the back um, between the skin and the spine where the fascia must be detached as the skin is removed from the carcass. Um, and I did find cuts um, sort of along the vertebrae of the of the back. So we're thinking that's a possible um, way that those cut marks could have gotten there. Um, the second really common fox skinning method involves making an incision along sort of each of the insides um, of the hind legs, as well as the forelegs, and then freeing the paws from the skeleton, and then sort of making a cut up along the tail. Um, and then the skin is just peeled off sort of like a glove from the tail to the snout um, and cuts are made by the ears and the mouth to sort of fully free the skin. Mm. Um, and so this method can leave cut marks in lots of different places. In particular, we would see cut marks um, on the ends of radii and ulnae and tibiae, um, sort of where the skin would be detached from the limbs and the paws. Um, and then cut marks would also appear on the temporal bones, nasal bones, and mandible, where the skin was sort of free from the face. Um, and we would also expect some on the caudal vertebrae where the tail is split or removed. Um, so then sort of taking my results and applying to that, the first thing that's important to note is that, you know, butchery techniques will differ slightly between individuals. And they also differ depending on the end use of the skin or whether um, the, the animal is actually going to be used for meat. Um, and so it's important um, also to note that, that each animal, it's unlikely that it was like, this fox is going to be for skin only and this one is going to be sort of for meat only. So probably the skin was being removed and used and then the meat would have been consumed for those foxes that, that were eaten. Um, so my analysis of the cut marks on the fox bones from Argvik suggests that the first step of this butchery process in dwelling to was the removal of the fox's head by making a cut across the body axis at the atlas. So that's the first vertebrae of the neck um, or lower in the neck. I did find cut marks on sort of cervical vertebrae um, that, that were not the atlas, but primarily on, on that first vertebrae of the neck. Um, and that would have allowed for the structured and possibly symbolic burial of these skulls. Um, and then sort of given that it was more common for these crania to be featured in the structured depositions uh, without the mandibles, without the jawbones, it's possible that the mandibles were separated from the rest of the skull sort of at this time when, when the, the heads were removed. After the removal of the head, foxes might have been sort of allowed to bleed out of the neck, which would have prevented further staining of the white, uh, of the mm. white fur, but that's sort of conjecture on my part. Um, what would have made sense based on things I've read. Um, next, both the forepaws and the hind paws would have been removed, um, you know, and that's where I'm seeing sort of cut marks on the radii and, and ulnae, um, as well as the, the tibia at the end. So um, the forearms and then the bottoms of the legs, um, right where the paws would have been removed. Um, at that point, the skin could have been separated from the carcass 
uh, without any further cuts as in the first technique I mentioned. Um, oh, and, and, and just to add there, the reason we know too that the hind paws and forepaws would have been removed is we did find a number of paws that were fully in articulation at the site. Um, mm -hmm. So it looks like they were being removed as, as like full units. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so following this removal, the skin could then be sort of freed from the back muscles by working across the fascia beneath the skin of the back uh, with an ulu. Alternatively, we can't really rule out the second technique um, because cuts could have just been made up the medial sides of the limbs prior to the skin being peeled off, kind of like a, a glove, uh, as I mentioned before. So given the known ethnographic usage of fox fur specifically for trimmings, um, you know, rather as that sort of primary clothing material where you'd want as big a piece as possible. Mm -hmm. um, another explanation for the cuts that I found on sort of the lumbar vertebrae um, is that the skin were cut sort of carefully up the spine right down the middle in order to split that fur into two thinner pieces. Um, and then in term, terms of sort of meat processing, so either in conjunction with the skinning process or as a separate procedure, um, extraction of the meat would have proceeded sort of similarly. So you have to remove the skin first before you remove the meat. So again, those skinning processes can still explain uh, those cut marks that I saw. Um, however, it's possible that the cuts, um, you know, commonly observed along the spine were just made actually to quickly remove the skin by splitting the back. Um, and then the skin would just be discarded and the meat accessed with less preparation. So that's a possibility as well. Um, and then next, instead of removing just the hind paws as in skinning for meat extraction, like the entire hind limb would be removed at the hip to, to keep that meat section together. Um, but we don't really see um, any evidence that the knee joint was being disarticulated because there's not that many marks on the, the lower leg where there are a lot on the forearm. Um, we also see some evidence of skinning the paws. So it's possible the entire hind limb was, was kept together, as I said, just as that single portion of meat. Um, mm -hmm. But the, um, the forelimb was disarticulated at the elbow joint. The elbow joint was, was taken apart. Um, which could have been done to separate the ulnus and or the ulna and radius, which makes up your forearm. Um, and, and that section of the body on a fox has very little meat. Um, and, and that would, that separation at the elbow joint would remove that small meat portion from the higher meat portion that is uh, attached to the humerus or the upper arm. Um, and then finally, at some point during butchery, the ribs uh, look like they were removed for food, which created the cuts that I observed on the proximal ends of the ribs and their shaft, as well as those uh, on the thoracic vertebrae. Um, so just to kind of wrap up what I said there, ultimately, many of the cut mark patterns are consistent with skinning, um, mm -hmm. which suggests that these foxes were exploited for pelts. But cut marks on the thoracic and lumbar vertebrae, so the back, as well as the ribs and radii, are sort of more consistent with at least some of the foxes being um, used as food. You mentioned the use of a tool called an ulu. Could you describe for our listeners what an ulu is? How does it look? What is it used for? Yeah, so an ulu is sort of a crescent-shaped knife. Um, it's the ones we found on Banks Island, at least, are made out of sort of a slate. Um, they would have had a, a handle uh, on the top, on the, the flat part of the crescent. 
Um, they're sometimes called women's knives, um, as you know, they are primarily used by women. Um, and, and that's partially because this skinning is done primarily, though not exclusively, um, by, by women. Um, and so, yeah, they would be used to sort of multi-purpose knife to, to help process the, um, the, the skin. Okay. Maybe we'll try to find a photo and include it with the episode notes so that the listeners get an idea of what this is. Yeah. So what is the significance of young foxes also being killed? Um, so we know that foxes at Banks Island um, give birth between late May and early June. Um, and so knowing that birth period, when we look at the epiphyseal fusion data, we can sort of tell how old some of the foxes were when they died. Um, so epiphyseal fusion is when your bone is growing, there are these things um, at the ends of the bones called epiphyses. Um, and those don't fuse until the bone is sort of done growing. Um, and, and so we can look at those patterns and sort of figure out how old these foxes were. Um, so in this sample, we see that at least 7.5% of the remains, um, the Arctic fox remains in this sample, were younger than six months old at their time of death. So this indicates to us that some Arctic fox hunting actually took place in the late summer and into the fall, um, so sort of before October. Um, but foxes don't develop their winter coats, like that nice, thick, uh, white fur that you would associate with an Arctic fox until November. So all foxes under five months would still have had their summer coats, um, which are sort of patchy, they're brown, they're really thin, not super good for, for making clothing. Um, so this would make it sort of unlikely that those that were killed, um, you know, earlier in the summer and the fall, um, unlikely that they were hunted primarily for their fur. Um, but fall is when um, Inuit traditionally move from focusing on those terrestrial resources um, like caribou and muskox to ringed seal as a primary resource. And this can be a time of food scarcity. So the season of death of at least some of these foxes sort of suggests to us that they may have been hunted at that time primarily for food. I see. What were some of the evidences for a symbolic significance of foxes at the site? Um, so the main evidence we have for symbolic significance of fox at the site was feature 29. Um, so this feature was a concentration of 13 fox crania. So that's just the top part of the skull, not including the mandible. Um, and these 13 crania were found immediately beneath the house berm. Um, and the location below the berm, but above preserved vegetation, suggests to us that they were deposited immediately prior to the house's construction. Um, and then additionally, we have these pairs of fox crania in other places um, around the dwelling in, in pit fills. So uh, that is the biggest cluster concentration of 13 fox skulls, or crania rather, but um, there were pairs found in, in different pit fills uh, around the site, which also seem to, to be structured deposits with potential uh, symbolic significance. And we know that uh, Inuit understand animals as offering themselves to hunters and that they must be treated with respect to ensure that they will continue to offer themselves. Um, and that uh, Inuit understand that animals must not be joked about or allowed to suffer. Um, 
so beyond that sort of respectful treatment varies depending on the animal species and it also varies you know across time and space things change um at, as to what is considered the respectful treatment of that animal um and this can involve offerings of clothing or food and it can also involve the ways that the bones are treated um yeah. after the the animal's been used so we're wondering if perhaps the importance of the fox um so as I said, we are thinking that the fox was used to sort of mitigate against food scarcity because the Amudsen Gulf, um, where Banks Island is located, doesn't have the same biodiversity of those species. So perhaps because fox was so important for these reasons, there was the development at this site of, you know, very particular protocols for the respectful treatment of the species in this region. And that's why we're seeing these features which again is kind of conjecture, but sort of what we're thinking might make sense for why there was such a strong symbolic significance at this site in particular. What are your plans for the future? Um, so I'm currently doing research uh, in sociocultural anthropology. So I'm looking at how university students understand their, their mental health struggles within the university context. Um, and, and sort of how that compares to other parties, you know, faculty and, and staff perceptions of, of student mental health struggles. Um, I'm hoping to defend that by April 2022 and then um, to, to start a PhD, hopefully moving back in the biological anthropology direction, um, mm. you know, in September of 2022. Do you have some particular things that you'd like to investigate for the PhD? Um, I'm, I'm hoping to look at sort of psychosocial stress um, and mental health, so continuing that from, from my MA, but looking at the effect on the human skeletal system, because I do really love studying bones, so I, I want to go back in that direction. Yeah, interesting. What advice would you give to undergraduate students who are interested in a career in zooarchaeology? I think my first piece of advice would be um, to connect with a professor um, in that area. You know, I was able to have this opportunity to to work on this site um, because of my relationship with Lisa, with Dr. Hodgetts, um, and, and, and that that she had these projects ongoing, you know, um, and those connections, you know, we talk about networking a lot, and it sort of has this like business tone to it and it can be kind of scary uh, I think for people it certainly is is for me um, but you know it can be something as simple as like taking that zoo archaeology class or or something related um, and you know making sure you're asking the professor questions um, and and engaging with that material going to their office hours um, and just sort of making that that personal and academic connection with them and and asking them um, you know do you have opportunities, um, you know, for, for doing some research, for me helping out in your lab, um, whatever, whatever the case may be. Um, in terms of actually like studying the zoo archaeology, um, one of, I remember the, the summer that I was working in Lisa's lab, one of the other professors at Western, um, you know, we passed in the hall, um, Dr. Andrew Nelson said, you know, Adriana, what, what have the bones told you today? Um, and I, I, it was funny, but I think it's really pertinent and, and just, you know, this idea, let the bones speak to you, let the evidence sort of speak for itself and, and it, it just comes together and, and can be really beautiful, even when you're working in, in more of a positivistic framework. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and again, you know, if you're interested in something, pursue it and don't let anyone tell you, you know, what a good or bad career path is like a good career path is, is one that, you know, you're passionate about and that, and that makes you happy and interested and challenged and engaged. Yeah, I like that advice. This is really interesting work that you're doing, particularly in how it involves a look at the continuity of activities over a very long period of time and how we see that some of the things that people are doing today are clearly connected to how their ancestors did it in the past. I think in that way, it's, it's particularly interesting. But I mean, also just the, the looking at how people were working in this particular industry of process, hunting and processing the foxes. So, so I'm interested to hear how this will develop and what you might later discover on this topic. Thanks for taking the time today to talk with us about your research and about this topic in general. Thanks so much for inviting me. Well, have a nice day then. Have a great day as well. You've been listening to the Archeo Cafe podcast. For more information and news, check out our website or social media pages. Links can be found in the episode notes or simply by searching online for Archeo Cafe podcast. If you have any questions or comments for the presenters or guest speakers, we'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I'll leave you with this quote from Jennifer K. MacArthur. Statements that will hold good for all time are difficult to obtain in archaeology. The most that can be done at any one time is to report on the current state of knowledge. <laughs>